Good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you, and I want to also greet those in McKenna Chapel and also through live stream around the, the country and the world who are watching our services and worshiping with us, uh, more importantly, uh, as the people of God in dispersion. So we welcome all of you as well. Before I uh, begin, I just want to uh, thank uh, Jessica uh, Legrone, our, our chapel dean, for um, uh, bringing out the importance of the prayer time for racial reconciliation. Uh, you should know uh, the students here, the faculty and staff will already be aware of it. We are, uh, I put out a, a pastoral letter uh, some time ago after we had some, uh, the, a lot of racial concerns in our country represented to us. And uh, we framed the whole thing uh, according to our mission of trying to ask the question from biblical theological framework. And then uh, we now have a very serious document which looks at every part of the seminary's life, uh, how we advertise, how we recruit students, how we uh, recruit faculty, uh, uh, what happens in our formation work, and what ways can we do a better job in every area. And this is something that will eventually be uh, part of a, a roadmap for us. And I just want you to know that we are we're very much, uh, haven't forgotten this, but it's something that we're looking at very carefully. and seeing how we can do better in every area. Okay, our theme for this academic year is the life of discipleship. And this has been building upon the two previous year's themes, the spirit-filled life and the grace-filled life. And this particular semester, uh, as part of this theme of discipleship, I'm focusing on the theology of the body or discipleship of the body. And the goal in these uh, sermons this semester is to focus on uh, the seven key building blocks for a theology of the body. Now, what is a theology of the body? It is essentially a Christian vision for what it means to be an embodied human person. Look at the very nature of the body. Uh, our bodies are talking to us. Our bodies were woven together to send us a message and point to great mysteries, and we're trying to unfold those little by little. Two weeks ago, we began with the first two of the seven building blocks. Uh, the first building block, I want to just briefly review those two, is that creation is good, and therefore it is trustworthy. This is a, uh, I don't think we realized how radical this message was in the Christian worldview. When Genesis 1-1 breaks in and says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this is radical. Hinduism never gets to Genesis 1-1. Buddhism never gets to Genesis 1-1. Uh, Islam does get there, but it is very, very radical. And certainly the Gnostics did not believe in Genesis 1-1, this denigration of the created world. And so in the Bible, by the time you get to Genesis 1-31, where God looks and declares that all things he created were very good, even though you're in Genesis 1.31, he, the world has already been declared good seven times, and we're only in Genesis 1, verse 31. Not to mention the dozens of psalms and all that scripture which extol the goodness of creation. Think about Psalm 19, that great psalm. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The expanse is proclaiming the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. It's saying the whole creation is proclaiming the goodness and presence of God because there's a consistency, there's a coherence between God's nature, character, and order in the created world that came out of his hand and of his spoken word. Of course, the 
world tells us the body is untrustworthy. Don't trust your body, trust your heart. The Bible says your heart is deceitful, but you can trust your body because it's part of God's inbuilt icons pointing to deep mysteries. Which brings us to the second building block, which was that our bodies are themselves icons or pointers to spiritual reality. Uh, in the Christian tradition, if you particularly are not familiar with the use of icons, icons are special paintings that rather than bringing you into the painting, they're actually, the lines of the painting all come to the eye of the observer, and it's meant to be looking through something into a heavenly reality. So when you look at an icon, it's meant to give you a window into something in heaven. The idea behind it is that it's a mysterious way of saying that the things that are so portrayed are revealing deeper spiritual mysteries. And the scripture teaches us that God has done things in our bodies to point to or give windows into deep realities. And one of these is our very bodies themselves. We find out that at creation, God created our bodies already in anticipation that someday he would come to the world in the incarnation and he would dwell in a body and the whole of redemption be unfolded in and through the body. So when he says in Hebrews, quoting Psalm 40, a body you have prepared for me, quoting the Septuagint of, of, of Psalm 40, it's not simply saying a body you prepared for me in the womb of Mary, of course it is that, but it's more than that. From the very dawn of creation, we're told, God prepared a body, the, the whole structure of the body, to be apt receptacle for the demonstration of his grace and goodness. In fact, without the body, there is no incarnation. There is no Christ's death on the cross. There is no resurrection. There is no ascension. There is no session of the Father's right hand. There is no bodily return of Christ. And by the way, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there is no bodily resurrection for you or me. We're all tied together in this wonderful picture of Christ preparing for us to see uh, his work through our own bodies. And of course, we all know, particularly as Wesleyans, that it is through the body that God conveys his grace to us. All the means of grace happen in and through the body. We're baptized in our body. We take the Eucharist in our bodies. We are hearing this sermon now with your ears. I'm speaking it with my mouth. We serve the poor with our bodies. All the means of grace happen in and through our bodies. Racial, the racial dignity of every race is based on that as well. Racial identity is, in fact, a bodily thing. We find the great eschaton that we're seeing in our cultural particularity, men and women from every tribe and tongue. And it was so beautifully displayed last two days ago when Nicole preached this on her message. The third building block, which is for today, is the divine design for marriage. On August 20th, 1983, my wife, Joy, and I were married. That's 37 years ago. She's there in McKenna Chapel because she's praying, playing it over there. I can promise you we had no idea that we were entering into some divine mystery. We were just getting married. <laughs> we just thought it would be a great idea to get married. And we got married. And it was only as we began to reflect more as Christians what an amazing truth and mystery that we were being invited into by the grace of God. You know, I never would have dreamed that they would come when the culture, much less the church, would would de debate endlessly what is the definition of marriage. You know, the church, of course, can debate and discuss many things, but is the definition of marriage one of them? Could there be actually a divine design for marriage? 
Could it be that, the, that marriage is not merely a social construct that's just generated by society? Could it be there might be a deeper mystery to which the world does not understand where God actually designed marriage for a greater purpose to which he wants us to realize? Now, I want to say up front, um, I realize that quite a few of you, and especially in a place like this, a seminary, that many of you are not married, not currently married, and quite a few of you may never, ever be married. And I want to exhort you to not regard a sermon on marriage as irrelevant. I want to exhort you not to think of this as a zero-sum game, that in talking about marriage today is anyway a denigration of those who are called to the single, single life. In fact, uh, in this, uh, we only have seven building blocks of the theology of the body, and the fifth one, which is two, two sermons from now, is in fact the celibate life and the particular calling of the single life, which has also been lost its vision for in our culture. So just be, hang on, never a second, there's a sermon coming your way. But uh, we actually find out, just to give you a little, uh, you know, I guess it's called like a prequel or, or whatever, but it's a, you know, there's actually two meanings of the body. We're only looking at one today, but there's the spousal meaning of the body, which is today, then eventually we'll see the celibate meaning of the body, and both are equally honored in Scripture. But we see we're doing this one first because it's actually creation that this particular sacrament is unfolded. We, of course, celebrate sacraments that Christ established Lord's Supper and Eucharist, but the Father also established sacraments, and one of which is in the Garden of Eden, at the first wedding which you heard uh, read earlier today. Now, this is going to be a, a sign or a window to us into some great mystery, but before we look at this, I want to give a couple of words of pastoral advice, especially as you go out from here and virtually everyone in this room. The one thing that does tie us all together is that we're preparing for Christian leadership as pastors and leaders. Let me give you a couple of words of advice. Um, first, and these are not, not, not these will surprise you, believe me, but just kind of remind us as a community, remind all of us together. First, there is a cultural tsunami wave which is sweeping across the culture which asks you and calls people to look at every issue through the lens of autonomous solitude. In other words, it wants you to look at everything through the lens of yourself. Uh, I am my frame of reference, is the mantra of this world. John Paul II, the, the, the Pope, had this wonderful phrase for this. He called it the strains of solitude. It's a great phrase. I have used the phrase the inward gaze, which is, of course, from that author's, uh, Herman Hesse's book, who popularized the idea uh, of an individual subjectivity as the measuring rod of all truth. That is exactly where our culture is. Nietzsche captured this that German phrase, that Ubermensch, someone who could survive the death of God and live in complete, total self-directedness. That is the tsunami that is sweeping across the culture. And by the way, it's not a new tsunami. Uh, the, or the church had a word for this, a great phrase that goes back to the Middle Ages, and it's called incurvatus in se, a Latin phrase meaning the, it's about the heart or the life turned inward in upon itself. I first got this uh, realization when I was a pastor, and I got a message from the, the district superintendent who encouraged us to not celebrate Mother's Day. 
And the reason that he told us to not start Mother's Day was because he said there will be people in the, in the congregation who will, are not mothers, and therefore you may hurt their feelings, and therefore uh, his advice was to just simply never mention Mother's Day. Well, I was probably 26 years old, but I still said, ah, that's really bad advice, even though it comes from a DS. Because the point, of course, which was oddly ignored or missed, was that everyone in the room has a mother. That's the point. Mother's Day is about your mother and celebrating her life. All of us come from mothers. We all honor our mothers. It's not about us. It's about how we want to honor those from which we came. And marriage is the same way. Uh, even though you may never be married, we are all here as the result of marriage. Marriage is the reason that we are in this room and we've been gifted by God into the world. And even if you came from a, a, a broken marriage or a, a marriage that was, uh, was not in a covenant, you know, whatever, there are no illegitimate children in the kingdom of God. We're still who we are because God had designed something, even if those who embodied it, whether it be a marriage that was broken and weird and whatever, or someone who wasn't married at all, it doesn't matter. We come forth because of God's plan, however broken. And this is why Matthew 19 is so amazing, because Matthew tells us, by virtue of Christ repeating all those texts, even after the fall, the original design remains intact. Second pastoral advice is that whenever you address marriage in the church, uh, you will encounter resistance because we are living in exile. The temple is destroyed. We are surrounded by rubble. The precious things of God have been cast down and burned, and marriage today is part of that rubble. You must see yourself as you go into, I know what you, we all would hope to see ourselves as like a, um, you know, we're Solomon on the throne, dispensing our pearls of wisdom to a gathered congregation, eager to hear the word. But what you should actually see yourself is more like Nehemiah. You're actually being called to wade out in the midst of rubble and rebuild something. Now, let me just encourage you that even though maybe you might wish you could be Solomon rather than Nehemiah, in fact, you're actually in a very wonderful opportunity. And this is the very reason why I believe that God called me in my own life to move into this world, because I believe that your generation is facing an unparalleled opportunity to stand in the midst of this rubble and rediscover the apostolic gospel. And the gospel that will be rediscovered by your generation is more compelling than post-modernity. The gospel that, is, that you'll discover is more powerful than the domesticated Christianity which has been falsely put out there as a real thing. The gospel, the, the great truth, that will be more, it's more glorious than the new atheism. In fact, you will be delivered from being a religious service provider to being a, someone that's equipping and unleashing a great awakening. It's the power to change. We think COVID-19, yeah, I hear a constant, COVID-19's changed everything. COVID-19's changed the world in a matter of three months. You know the gospel has more power to change this world than COVID-19? Do you believe that? The gospel has the power to transform this world in such a way that COVID-19 would say, wow, now that's change. 
We have to believe that. I believe that. Okay, let's get to our text. Our text today is in Matthew 19, one of our texts. And the text begins by the Pharisees seeking to trap Jesus. And they do it by asking a question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, I love the fact if you count how many times Jesus asks the questions, you find quite a few of them, he doesn't answer the question. What's Jesus' problem? Can he answer a question? No, Jesus is great about seeing behind the question to the real reality. The Pharisees do not care about issues of divorce. What they're concerned about is trying to trap Jesus and then Jesus realized the real problem, the deeper problem, is beyond the presenting problem. It is a deeper issue, and he calls us to that. Because in some ways, the Pharisee's question is so modern. I love it because of that. It's so, it's like, so like, yeah. I mean, think about the questions that could be put in its place. Lord, is it lawful for two men to marry? Lord, is it lawful to someone to change their gender? Lord, is it lawful to live together outside of, uh, outside of matrimony or, or marriage? These are very, very modern questions. It just happened to be that divorce was the raging issue uh, of his day with two Jew Jewish schools. But we, you know, we've already gone through this. Our culture already absorbed that. So we've already moved on to other issues, other parts of the rubble. So Jesus has a way of understanding what lies behind the question, and he actually responds with this wonderful point where he says to them, haven't you read, verse 4. Now right there, there's enough in that, those words for a whole sermon. Because what he's telling us is, the first thing you have to remember, when someone asks you a question, like the typical cultural presenting question, haven't you read? In other words, these things are adjudicated on God's word. We don't take our theology from culture. We don't take our cue from the latest cult, you know, popular sentiment. We take it from the Word of God. Haven't you read? And he goes, from the beginning, it was not so. And he has to even leap over eventually Moses and all of the, all the you know, they of course misquoted Moses. They totally misapplied the original text and all that. But the whole point, even the, as they understood it and how it was understood originally was still a misalignment from the original design. The point is the people of God can also get it wrong. And so you have to go back to the beginning, go back to the text and get it right. Haven't you read from the beginning the Creator made them male and female? For this reason, male will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and two become one flesh. They're no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let, none, or let no one separate. So Jesus brings us back to creation. This is the great reminder to us at times it's important for the church to stop, go back to the beginning, and reestablish what was the original design of creation. Now, that's the only way we can give a positive vision, because we cannot take our cues from the culture. Before we look at that, just rehearse the cultural narrative and see if I get this right. Uh, we live in a time where the teachings of Christ and the New Testament are, I would say, utterly unknown and certainly at least incomprehensible to the culture around us. The idea of design is completely gone, does not exist to my knowledge in the culture that we are called to proclaim the gospel into. Marriage is a socially determined commodity in the modern world. Marriage has been defined as a legal arrangement which allows two people uh, um, to satisfy or fulfill their emotional and sexual needs 
and provide economic security. Now, individual freedom, personal autonomy, and your own fulfillment are huge values in the Western world. So it was only a matter of time for marriage gradually began to be domesticated into that framework, and that's the framework that we have inherited. So basically, it's a whole, it's actually known as the commodification of marriage, a process where uh, social relationships like marriage are reduced to economic and emotional exchange units. With this framework, marriage is fully privatized. There's no public vision for it, certainly not a divine vision for it, no public sphere. It is now about personal gratification and happiness. So there's no talk about sustaining the race, about producing character, raising children, reflecting the triune God, becoming co-creators with God, all those things are gone. And we end up with that. Now the church has unwittingly accepted the wider culture's narrative concerning marriage. And we have therefore very little room to maneuver. I mean, very little room. So the problem for us is not trying to answer whatever the culture's question is, because our problem is deeper. Our problem is not an eight-year problem, it's an 80-year problem. We have actually accepted a whole definite starting point to which we have to say, wait a minute, is that right? And go back to the beginning, like Christ called us, and to get it right. Quite frankly, we have built on the foundation of self-fulfillment and self-donation, I mean self-fulfillment rather than self-donation, on utilitarianism rather than covenant, and autonomous determinism rather than divine revelation. So if you look at the design of marriage in the Bible and how Jesus exposits it, and this is found, of course, in Jesus and in Paul, in Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, are great moments. We shared some of those earlier. You'll find that just as the individual is the icon of the incarnation, all of you are icons or windows to the incarnation in the same way the marriage relationship, husband and wife, are designed to be, from the beginning, icons or windows of Christ and the church. So part, just like your body is telling the world, there can be an incarnation, the marriage is telling the world, there can be a church, there can be an ecclesiology, and the whole world is invited into this wonderful communion. So this is the mystery. In fact, when Paul actually, Paul kind of lets out of the bag when he's discussing Ephesians 5, you know, this whole thing, husbands and wives and loving one another and so forth. And then he says, this is a profound mystery that I'm talking about. And you just expect him to say, the marriage of a man and a wife. But he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. He's telling us something about how we understand the body and marriage as icon. Now, there's four ways in which this icon of marriage is manifested uh, to the world. First is that marriage is unitive. Now, for most of history, this was never thought or questioned. But now we have to reestablish this basic point that he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this means many things, but it, at its root, it is talking about a sexual union between a man and a wife, man and, his, and, the, and the wife. So the husband and wife come together, and part of what we do, we actually call it the consummation of marriage, is the phrase that's used. It's actually an old phrase we sometimes have to remember. 
But the part of the consummation of marriage is saying it's not just the ceremony, not just some kind of legal document, but actually it is, in fact, the sexual intercourse between husband and wife, which actually mirrors this unity, this union of Christ and his church, the beatific vision of all time, that we will someday be united ultimately with Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, your bodies are members of Christ. The Corinthians, like us today, had begun to be influenced by Gnostic ideas. So they were saying, well, you know, uh, food for the body, a body for the food, uh, God discards them both, doesn't matter. What they're saying was, what really matters is our hearts. What matters is our, you know, our inner life before God. That's what matters, the spiritual part of us. So what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. Therefore, if we have sex outside of marriage, it doesn't matter. But Paul says to them, verse 16, don't you know that if you join yourself with a prostitute, you become one body with her? See, it's unitive. He said, but who is joined, but, the, but he said, for it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Paul explicitly applies the Genesis 2.24 to sexual union, in this case, saying to them, that's why you can't have sexual intercourse with a prostitute. And the point I think you have to realize is that we all get the point, even the world actually gets this point to some degree, look at like, you know, Beyonce's songs or whatever, there's a certain point where you, even the world realizes that if you enter into agreement with somebody, a covenant, they don't call it that, but a, a marriage with somebody, and you break that through adultery, that's a very, very deep pain and hurt. Even the world still gets that to some degree. But Paul's point is, yes, of course, to unite you know, with a prostitute is adultery or anyone outside of your marriage. But the point is, the other point, it's not just hard, it's vertical you're also breaking the great pointer, the window into Christ and his church. It's ultimately, it's a sin against Christ, which is why even David said in Psalm 51, when he sinned that horrible sin against Bathsheba, he said, I have sinned against God. Even there, the tracks are being laid that it's about a vertical and horizontal commitment. So marriage is unitive. And if you have relationships that aren't unitive, aren't, can't be sexually joined, that is not something that's the church is uh, indifferent about. Second, marriage is procreative. That is, it's fruitful and it multiplies and it fills the earth. This was the original command. We are actually invited to be co-creators with God. Now, this is a whole nother uh, one of the building blocks because it involves not simply how it points to Christ, but also points to the whole trinity. It points to Christ because Christ says he has been redeemed in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. So part of the creation was designed was to multiply and be fruitful. It's part of that. And again, all of us, even if we ourselves don't have children, we are part of the fruitfulness of the womb of our, of our mothers and our, our fathers' marriages. We'll come back to that one at another time. Third, marriage is binary between a man and a woman. Now, the creation of man and woman is actually a sign of the invasion of God against the solitude of man. So God invades the world with his own beautiful colloquy, you know, the whole Trinitarian relational God in, in himself as a sweet society, you know, the Puritan said. God invades the world as a community, Father and Holy Spirit, and he says it's not good for man to be alone. And he, and he creates the man and woman and, of course, the point of this is not simply to dispel the solitude of a, a person without 
fellowship communion in the way that it was, uh, marriage reflects one of many ways that it's reflected, because it's also reflected in friendship and many other amazing ways. That's why we've got to get beyond this social distance world. We can hug each other again. Looking forward to that day. We're not yet, but it'll make us long for it. We're actually betrothed to him. People of God are betrothed to God. Even the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, you know the text. Jeremiah, Isaiah 31, and Jeremiah, uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 54, etc. Where we actually are looking for that day when he creates the male and female, that's going to mirror Christ and the church. So in the creation account, all those binaries, light and darkness, day and night, earth and sky, water and land, sun and moon, all of those binaries culminate in male and female. The point being, there are two glories that are brought together into this union to reflect the fact that there is a great union that we're all moving toward. And by the way, all of us someday, married or single or not, the marriage institution will someday fall away because it's also temporary because we're all moving to that real marriage which involves all of us and we will be part of the bride of Christ. Christ does not marry himself. Christ marries the other. The church becomes that great text we heard read, read, the glorious spotless bride bringing these two glories together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why the church has not embraced same-sex marriage, because it's part of the incurvatus in say, the turning in on oneself. We always understand that the binaries of male and female, which Christ reaffirms, are part of the binary nature of Christ and the church. Finally, and probably most profoundly, marriage is self-giving or donative. The fact that marriage is an act of mutual self-donation one to another is a profound mystery. That in fact, it's not about our needs being met, it's our serving the other. This is the whole leaving and cleaving. This is what Paul explores in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 7, where each are, are enjoined to fulfill their marital duties. Paul actually radically breaks from the culture of his day when he says, into our day as well, we are actually not free to do what we want with our own bodies. This is a complete shock to our culture today, which they say among everything, among all things, you can certainly do what you want with your body. Paul says, no, the wife's body does not belong to her, but also to her husband. The husband's body does not belong to him, but also to his wife, 1 Corinthians 7, 4. So we have, of course, a lot of challenges to respond to that. And of course, Christ, ultimately the cross itself, is the ultimate example of self-sacrifice. Christ sacrificed himself for the world and amazingly, in many, many ways, and we'll come back to this one as well, but whenever we serve one another, whether it be in marriage or in the church or in the world, we are saying to others in the world, this is my body given for you. Part of the whole sacramental nature of our life in the world is that we, give our, we lay our lives down before the world. Paul, of course, says this is a profound mystery. So we have in scriptures this remarkable, glorious vision about Christ and the church with at least four dimensions to it which we explored today. This is a glorious vision. There's no way a sermon can, can uh, do justice to it. 
But please recognize there's something glorious that we need to recover, and it's something the whole church must join together to do. When I was uh, very young, when I close the story, I was, uh, I was in college, and I was asked to be a part of the wedding of uh, 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 like the best man for, uh, not the best man, but a, uh, one of the uh, groomsmen for a wedding. And the, the uh, woman who's getting married, her father was Jamie Buckingham. Now, you have probably never heard of that name, but in the 70s, he was a very, very popular author. And I was so excited because part of the deal was to go down, you know, and stay in his home and be a part of this. So uh, my roommate and I, who we were both in the wedding, uh, we were asked to come down all the way to Florida. We were driving from Tulsa, Oklahoma, all the way to Florida, Melbourne, Florida, where we're going to be a part of this wedding. Well, we're going to be driving all night. By the way, I'm really, really amazed how your generation can drive all night long. I have long kind of gone beyond that stage. But there was a time when I, too, could drive through the night. So we drove through the night. We're so excited. You know, we're going to get there like 2 in the morning. And so Jane Buckingham, who we're eager to meet, of course, because he's this famous author, and, of course, to be part of the ceremony and all the marriage, we, um, he said to us, you know, uh, because you're having so late, uh, I'll leave the back light on right there behind the house with the address and just slip in the back door be open and just there's the bedroom, bathroom across the hall, and then we'll see you in the morning for breakfast. So you're great. So we get there, you know, 2, 2, 3 in the morning. We go through the grass. We find the, the little door there and the light's on. Door was unlocked. We go in. We put our bags down, getting ready to, to go to sleep. And we went across, of course, to use the bathroom, get cleaned up before we went to sleep. And then I... Just happened to glance and realize next door to the bedroom where we were staying, the lower part of the house, was Jamie Buckingham's office, his study. Like a magnet, I couldn't help myself. I was being pulled inward. I didn't have the courage to turn on a light. I just tiptoed into the room, and I thought, wow, this is where Jamie Buckingham as, you know, have written these books. I'm here for the marriage, but I'm here to see Jane Buckingham's books. And so I was there, and, you know, and I looked over across the, and the moonlight, the, the moon was illuminating the room a bit, and so the moon was shining in, and it was shining onto his typewriter. I know, typewriter. This is 1977. And so he, um, I just felt the pole again, pulling over to the typewriter, and I went up to the typewriter, and I said to myself, here is the typewriter. This is the typewriter. This is where he's written all these books. I'm right here in the presence of Jamie Buckingham's typewriter. I know, I know. And uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, book man, right? And so I was just so amazed. But then the, the moon shined onto the typewriter there, and he had a little sticker on the typewriter that he would see every day, like we put things on our mirrors or whatever, there's a little sticker there, and it had these words on it. I've never forgotten them. In fact, they're part of our campaign, even now at Asbury. It said this, Attempt something so big that unless God intervenes, it's bound to fail. Attempt something so big that unless God intervenes, it's bound to fail. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, the rediscovery, the rebuilding of Christianity, including the divine design for marriage, is a huge, massive project. 
the whole culture will be a tsunami against you. You cannot do it without God's help. But with God's help, you can do it, and you will embody it, because God has determined that it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, so much that you have declared our physical bodies so good that you even use them as windows into mysteries we can't even imagine. Help us, Lord, to continue understanding this and realizing how precious each of us are in your holy sight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.